Well, good morning, New Hope. So glad that you're here with us on Mother's Day. And, and my sentiments echo that of the entire team that's here, the tech team and the worship team. And we just wish that you were all here with us so we could give you a big old hug and, and moms give you a flower like we typically do on Mother's Day. But we can't do that this morning. But soon we will. As a matter of fact, our team has been meeting and will continue to meet in the days ahead in, in the way of putting together strategy for when we can meet together. And we're hoping that that's very, very soon. So you'll be getting information about that. We'll keep you informed along the way. But in the meantime, we're going to worship God together by looking at his word this morning. So again, happy Mother's Day to you moms. And I'm going to walk with you through a passage this morning that I think is going to encourage your hearts, although it may not feel like it at first. But we're going to look at God's word together. And the best gift I can give you this morning is teaching you from the word of God and teaching you as clearly and as distinctively as we possibly can. So in honor of my mom, I brought her Bible in this morning. I'm I'm using her Bible to refer to. And it's one that literally, let me show you this. You hear about people wearing out the cover from their Bible. My mom's Bible no longer has a cover on it. The cover is completely gone because she used it so much. And it was a Bible that my mom and dad used to together. And if you look through it, you'll see lots of things that she underlined, notes that she made to herself. Um, In the very cover, though, is this very simple little two-sentence statement that she wrote down. And I I think it comes from D.L. Moody. I'm not sure. But it says this, sin will keep you from this book, and this book will keep you from sin. And that's the way she started it out, and then she put her name in there and my dad's name, and I'm privileged to be able to have it here this morning. Both my mom and dad have passed into eternity, but I'm honoring her by using her Bible this morning. So I'm going to ask you to do this with me. If you have a Bible in your lap, maybe you have your, uh, your phone, or maybe you have it electronically another way, or you have a hard copy in your hand, and you're sitting there with some family members right now, or perhaps you're sitting there all by yourself, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bible. And the first thing we're going to look at is 1 Peter chapter 3, and then we're going to transition over to Romans chapter 2. So 1 Peter chapter 3 starts out this way, and you're going to see it up on the screen. It's this anchor verse that we've been using for this very short series that we're in, and it reads this way. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account. And we've been saying that that means reason. To everyone who asks you to give a reason, so we've called this short series Reasoning, for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Because as we've been arguing over the last couple of weeks, you never know when someone will ask you about the hope that is in you. They're going to ask you, why do you have hope in the midst of this? Well, as I've mentioned, this is the fourth week in this particular series called Reasoning. And in this fourth series that we're working through, we're going to look at the other examples in which we heard over the last couple of weeks the things that people might ask about, like, why do you believe the Bible? Why do you believe in the resurrection? Or what about your own personal restoration story? But perhaps, perhaps the greatest defense that you have for the reason for the hope that's in you is not the status of your restoration or not the validity of the Bible, or not the resurrection. But perhaps the greatest defense for why you have a hope that is within you is something you've never stopped to consider before, something that's been removed from your life. 
the very thing that every other human on this planet lives with if they're not a follower of Christ every single day, and that thing is guilt. I want to examine that with you this morning, and I believe you're going to be encouraged coming out of it, but I especially want to pray with you right now before we go any further. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you on this Mother's Day morning, an opportunity to honor moms, although we can't do it at the church in the way that we want to. We do do it by looking at your word and examining what you have to say to us. So I pray, Father, right now that you would examine our hearts, that we would place ourselves in that position, man or woman, son or daughter, child, believer, even those who are not yet believing that we would be willing to place ourselves in that place where you can speak to us, that we would allow your word to press on our hearts. So God, I ask that you would do that right now. Examine us and illuminate our minds. Give us understanding. Give us insight so that we can speak more confidently, Father, into the lives of people who have legitimate questions. I pray for that. I pray for that probing to take place. Also, God, I, I ask in relation to this virus that um, has our world by the throat that you would accomplish your purposes, and as your purposes are accomplished, you would draw glory to yourself, and in the midst of it, Father, we ask that you would release us from this plague, that your people would be able to gather once again, that life would resume more normally on this planet. But in the midst of this new normal, that you would allow us to still praise you and thank you. And one of the ways we can do that is by spending time with you right now in your word. So we do praise you because you're worthy of it, and we want to bring glory and honor to your name. All these things we ask of you, we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And all God's people said, amen. To have physically stood outside of the ancient Hebrew temple in the first century would mean for you to be aware. To be aware of your surroundings, to be aware of the responsibility that you had before God, and especially to be aware of the contents inside the temple. Everyone was aware of what was on the other side of the wall. See, in the ancient Hebrew world, no one was allowed to go inside the temple building itself. They could only stand in the courtyard and look at the temple, and they would bring their sacrifices forward. They're not allowed inside, but everyone was aware of what was inside. Throughout the course of a normal year, families were responsible to come to the temple and to bring an offering, a sacrifice for their guilt, to make a sacrifice on behalf of their family. So it was not uncommon to come to the temple and stand outside the temple building and watch from a distance as a priest skillfully would use his abilities to work with the sacrifice that you brought, preparing it to be offered to God on the altar. And it was not uncommon to stand there and observe from a distance while at the same time thinking about what was just on the other side of the wall. What was inside the temple building itself? Because inside, that's where the next level of intervention took place. We're going to place an image on the screen for you, and, and I want you to kind of drink this in because perhaps you've seen it before, and, and I want to explain what you're looking at. Inside the ark 
is things that God had told the people of Israel to collect. And that was placed inside the temple. This very special apparatus which stood behind a really thick veil. And this thing that's called the Ark of the Covenant, it's it's representing the presence of God. This image that you see on the screen is an artist's rendition of the Ark of the Covenant. And if you look very closely at the center of the Ark, you see the two cherubim made of pure gold with their wings spread out over what is called the mercy seat or the lid of the Ark. As you're drinking that in, let me get just historical with you, maybe just archaeological for a moment. We have no idea whatever happened to the ark. We don't know. It's been lost to history. The Bible doesn't tell us. History doesn't tell us. There's, there's much speculation about what might have happened to it. If you asked Indiana Jones, he'd say it's in a warehouse someplace hidden in Washington, D.C. We don't know, and that particular detail is not important Here's what is important. On one particular day, once per year, an enormous procession of people would gather together around the temple. That day was known as the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would be allowed to go inside the Holy of Holies. We call it today the Day of Yom Kippur. Yom meaning day and Kippur meaning this word that you see on your screen. Kippur meaning atonement. Yom, day, Kippur, atonement, and it's specifically a reparation through compensation, meaning there's some repairs that have to be done through payment. Here's an example for you of what the Bible's talking about when it refers to this. Look with me on your screen at Exodus chapter 30. Aaron shall make Kippur, atonement, on its horns once a year. Now just stop right there and just pause for just a moment. The horns it's talking about are the four corners of the ark that you just looked at, the ark of the covenant. Aaron shall make an atonement on its horns, on its corners once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement of Kippur once a year throughout your generations. And it goes on to say, it is most holy to the Lord. So inside this Holy of Holies, the inner chamber of the inner chamber is where the blood of the sacrifice was brought on behalf of the nation. And the Ark of the Covenant specifically was to be sprinkled, specifically on the seat, the mercy seat. It was to be sprinkled with the blood from the sacrifice, and only the high priest could do that, and he would enter and offer a sacrifice with his head bowed to the ground, with the sandals off from his feet, with a very ornately trimmed robe, and every item was sprinkled with the blood, especially the lid of the ark where the cherubim were with their wings spread over the mercy seat, the place of atonement or propitiation. The Bible says that's where the wrath of God was satisfied, where the guilt of the people was put away. Leviticus tells us why. Leviticus 17, 11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make kippur, to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So check this. If you've lost everything else and maybe your eyes glazed over while I was explaining all that, hear this. God's standard is that blood would make an atonement for guilt. That's God's standard. He lays it out very, very clear. 
You see it throughout the Old Testament, and then it's repeated again throughout the New Testament. Here's the problem, though. The problem with sacrifices are that they had to be repeated over and over and over and over and over because people constantly fail. And we pile up guilt on top of guilt on top of guilt. And that guilt has to be dealt with. And the problem with the sacrifices were that you sinned constantly. So I'm here to ask you this morning, what do you do with your guilt? I'm going to ask you to take the information from the Ark of the Covenant that I just shared with you, and we're going to make that part of part B, but I needed to lay the groundwork this week with it. This, this series that we're doing right now, this is part four, and it's, it's the final one in the reasoning series, but it's part 4A and part 4B, so we get a two-parter this week and next week. But I want you to take that information on the Ark of the Covenant and keep that in the back of your mind as we plow through this but save it also for next week. And I'm asking you right now, what do you do with your guilt? And I'm asking about real guilt because guilt is objective. It's tangible. It's real. We wear it. We carry it. It's a weight in our mind. Guilt is incurred when you break a law. Now, maybe on one level, you've got guilt that you've incurred from stealing dimes as a child from your mother's purse. I, I could speak to that one myself because I did that exact same thing, and, and I'll come back to that in just a minute. Or perhaps you've incurred guilt from something as hurtful as an offense within a relationship. You've offended someone. Or perhaps even to the degree of breaking some form of society's law and you're carrying a guilt from that. There's many ways to incur guilt, and the guilt continues to pile up every single day of our lives. What do you do with that guilt? Well, with the exception of an extreme minority, every human on earth knows intuitively that we carry guilt with us. We carry it all the time. So when our parents' laws are broken over the rules of the house or the government's laws are broken, there's systems within our society for crime and punishment. My, my parents, in the relationship to the dimes that were taken from my mom's purse when I did that as a nine-year-old, had a system of punishment for the crime that I had committed. I, I was getting into my mom's purse because I thought she'd never miss a dime at a time. And my brothers and I were riding down to a, a local store and we were meeting friends there and pretty soon I started showing up with lots of dimes in my pocket and I, I was buying treats for my friends at the local general store. And my brothers were looking at me like, where do you keep getting all these dimes from? Well, eventually my mom figured it out that I was taking them from her purse. And they had a system of punishment in our house. It was known as a paddle and my mom didn't hesitate to use the paddle. My dad didn't hesitate to use it because they believed that if you spared the rod, you would spoil the child. So we've got within our society a system of rules, and when rules are broken, we've got a punishment that's in place. The punishment has to fit the crime. Now, on a global scale, when there's crimes against humanity by a nation, sometimes other nations put sanctions in place. At a local and a state level, perhaps it's crimes against the tax code. Well, there's punishment for that, fines or prison or perhaps loss of property. I've read that in the 1950s, if you were in a school system and you chewed gum in class, 
or you talked back to the teacher, there was actually punishment for that. For chewing gum in class, can you imagine? Well, there's, there was guilt that was incurred for crimes that had been committed. So each of these systems I'm referring to is representing an indebtedness and a payment. A debt, and there has to be a payment. You commit the crime, there has to be reparations. And so we're all left asking when we have guilt on us, how do I balance the scales of justice so that I don't have debt? I got to deal with my guilt. What do I do with that? Well, there's a price that has to be paid in order to be restored. What about, though, when it comes to crimes against God? The Bible says that the ultimate laws of this universe are the laws that God put in place. And his laws are very well defined. He's got laws of the universe by which he operates systems. He's got laws which govern our society. He's got laws which govern our lives. If you happen to have someone in your life who thinks there is no God, and so therefore they're not accountable to him, they they think they don't have to worry about breaking his laws, even if you have someone in your life who falls into that very small category, regardless of that thinking, they know there's laws of society. Like you got to wear a mask these days when you go into a grocery store. What about when you don't do that? Are you breaking the law? What about breaking the law when you speed, when the Signs posted on the side of the road say, don't exceed 55, and you find yourself doing 75 in a 55. There's a failure on everyone's part to always keep the law. We have to admit that. We just need to be honest with ourselves this morning. We all break laws, and therefore, we all have guilt. And I'm asking you, what do you do with your guilt? What's the solution that's available? Now, some today, if if you ask them what they do with their guilt, they might say this, well, I don't actually worry about it. I think it's all just going to wash out in the end. I don't have to stay up at night worrying about that. Now, that's probably a pretty small minority who actually think that way, who say, I think it's just going to wash out in the end. But in that thinking, they're thinking like the first half of 1 Corinthians 4.4. Let me put up just the first portion of 1 Corinthians 4. This is Paul writing, and he says, I'm not aware of anything against myself. And let me explain why I just wanted to put the first half up there. That's reflective of the way most of humanity thinks. We examine our lives and perhaps we're thinking, I've done everything that I'm supposed to do. I'm I'm not aware of anything against myself. But watch the second half now of how Paul finishes that out. Finish the rest of the verse. I'm not aware of anything against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted But it is the Lord who judges me. Paul's got it right. And he's he's writing there, I've examined my own actions and I've found them in accordance with my value system. But my value system doesn't mean that I'm clean. What's Paul doing here? He's simply validating that the conscience is a real thing. We all have a conscience. We all have guilt and we all have a conscience. So because humans are very aware and there's an innate sense of these eternal scales that are in our lives and and they're weighing the good and bad, the reality is 99.9% of us live with a need to reset the scales. We want to know how do we balance those things out so that I don't have greater debt than what I have forgiveness. I don't want to have more guilt then a clear conscience, how do I balance the scales back out? And that's how 99.9% of us think. 
reason this with me. The Bible tells us that God has written rules on our heart. And those rules are kept in check by our conscience. We're going to be in Romans 2 in just a moment. And Romans 2 tells us that our conscience bears witness against us. It tells us there is right and it tells us there is wrong. There's what Immanuel Kant called this universal sense of oughtness. Immanuel uh, Kant is a, a famous philosopher, he lived many, many years ago, not a Christian by any measure, but a great philosopher. And he says, e even as a person who wasn't necessarily devoted to Christ, he recognized there's this universal sense of oughtness of what we're supposed to do and not do. I'm bringing this issue up for this reason. You may have individuals in your life who will give no regard whatsoever to the Bible. You may have individuals in your life who will give no regard whatsoever to the resurrection of Jesus. You may have individuals in your life who will give no credibility whatsoever to your own restoration story. Each of those three we examined over the last three weeks. But I guarantee you, I promise you, Every single person you know knows what guilt is. And I'm simply asking the question, what do you do with your guilt? That thing that keeps you up at night, privately, that you hide away in your thoughts. See, what we're ultimately talking about here, we're talking about guilt before God. Not necessarily guilt before society or guilt before a family member or, or guilt of crimes against humanity but guilt before God, an internal awareness of an eternal judgment. Because the ultimate laws that are violated are the laws that God established. We would call them inviolable laws. The laws that God established that are originating in God's values and they're written deeply on our heart. And God says to us, that thing that's engraved on your heart, your conscience, it didn't get there by itself. It didn't just arrive there through some series of evolution. That thing that's there on your heart, your conscience, I put it there. I engraved these things on your heart. You'll see that very clearly in Romans 2. To the degree, Paul writes, that even if we don't have a copy of God's word, even if we live someplace on this planet where we don't own a Bible and it's not available to us, we still stand guilty because God says the evidence is overwhelming surrounding you. And Paul writes this way. He says, just imagine yourself on judgment day. Just imagine yourself standing before the judge of all the earth. And in that moment, when you stand before him, there's only one thing you're going to be able to do. You're going to be able to stand there or perhaps fall on your knees and close your mouth. Look with me at Romans chapter 3. It says this in Romans 3.19, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Paul's picturing there the ultimate judgment when we stand before God. See, if we break the laws of God, we're placed in a position of eternal guilt. And that is exactly what has happened to every single human being. Romans 3.23 goes on to say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I know if you're church people, you know that verse, but I wonder if you've ever stopped to consider this reality. 
Romans 3.23 has nothing to do with shame. But it has everything to do with the reality that we're guilty. We're guilty before God. It's not Paul trying to shame people. It's rather Romans saying, we're guilty and there's nothing that we can say that will change it. Before God on judgment day, every voice will be stopped because every voice is accountable. So you won't have any alibis and you won't have any excuses. There'd be an utter futility of making any defense. Now, I know this is the way some people think. Some people think that God's just gonna wink. He's just gonna wink and say, oh, come on in, you knucklehead. I know you didn't mean anything by it. And they think that God's just gonna let everybody slide. Like, God grades on a curve, doesn't he? I'm here to tell you this morning, he does not grade on a curve. The Bible goes on to say that God is actually an impartial judge. No one writes about this issue more than Paul, and Paul wrote about it in length in Romans 2. And I know that as a church, we spent three years in the book of Romans, but I'm just going to ask you if you were part of that, maybe to think back four years in time to 2016 when we were in chapter 2. But very quickly, we're going to visit some of those principles about guilt and forgiveness as we look at this. Go with me to verse 11 in chapter 2 of the book of Romans. And Paul starts out by saying, for there is no partiality with God. This really big Greek word is this word partiality, prosopolempsia, and it means no favoritism. God doesn't show favoritism to anyone. He's not a respecter of persons. This word partiality, it actually came out of the court systems and out of, and by the court systems, I mean the king's court, out of the royal realm. It, it was associated with the ancient custom of a king lifting up the head of someone who had bowed before him. They came before the king's presence and they bowed and the king would reach out and touch them by the chin and lift their chin up and show partiality. It was a way of, of showing respect to that person, to give consideration of a person because of who they are. Perhaps they had the king's favor when they came in the king's presence. Well, the, the exact opposite of that scene is seen in the statue that we're most familiar with, the, the statue of the scales of justice. You go in any court system today in the United States or any lawyer's office, in some place you're going to find an image of that lady justice, and she's holding scales in her hand. But the remarkable thing about that woman is that she's blindfolded. That woman holding the scales of justice has a blindfold on so that she will not be giving favoritism so that she will be an impartial judge. She has to put a blindfold on so that she doesn't know who's in front of her. Well, the Bible goes on to argue God knows everything. He sees all, but he's still impartial. So check this. Because of his perfect knowledge of every single detail of your life and because of his perfect righteousness, he's the perfect judge. His justice is perfect. So as a judge, just walking through this, I want you to remember two things about God. First of all, God shows no favoritism. You just saw that. Paul said there's no partiality with him. Now, why is that super important? Because my experience is this. When you're considering the guilt and the judgment of God, most who consider that and contemplate God, they arrive at one of three positions. And check and see if you find yourself in one of these three. Perhaps you're number one. Maybe you're a person this morning who finds God awesome. You think his, his glory is magnificent. He's worthy of all honor and praise. Or perhaps you find yourself in the position of number two. 
The second group would say, God is just a big teddy bear. He's just love, 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 love. Or maybe you find yourself in the position of number three. And maybe you're thinking he's a tyrant. And he just wants to drop the hammer. And he can't wait to pound you into the ground. I don't know which category you would say you land in, but somebody typically finds himself in one of those three categories. That last one in particular, who think of God as a tyrant, many times it's because they've heard stories of the Old Testament. And they hear about how Israel conquered nations and how God sent them out to destroy whole populations. Yet they retort with this saying, but wait, that same God doesn't take King David's life for committing murder and committing adultery? How is that a fair God? I don't want anything to do with him. And in those statements, they completely miss the biggest issue of all. All sin is a capital offense. Everyone stands guilty before God. The real issue is why does anyone get to live in the first place? Because he's a merciful God. So as a God, judge shows, God, as a judge, God shows no favoritism. But here's a second one I want you to remember. God is profoundly patient. He said to Moses in the book of Exodus, he's, he's merciful to a thousand generations. He could drop the hammer at any time. Then he chooses not to. It's not a strike against his character. It merely is showing that his character is that he doesn't show partiality. It's not a strike against him. He could bring about punishment, but it evidences his capacity to deal with sin in the way that he chooses. So catch that. Look with me on the screen. There is no partiality with God. That's a huge thing to remember when you're talking about your guilt. It's a character statement. But this standard of partiality with God impartiality, it it has a, a problem, especially as you come into verse 12, because verse 12 mentions two groups. Two groups are considered here. God has not dealt with two groups in the same way. To the Jews, you find this in the Bible, he's given a revelation of himself through the law. He's revealed himself through the books of Moses. And he denied that to the Gentiles. But Paul writes, the Gentiles do have a law. The Gentiles, that's us. If you're not born Jewish, it's not a derogatory statement. You're what the Bible calls a Greek or a Gentile. And we do have a law. And that law is the basis for guilt, and it's a basis for judgment in our life. Go with me to verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law, that's the Gentiles. Gentiles have sinned without the law. All will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law, that's the Jews, will also be judged by the law. So you've got these two distinct groups that are being linked here, and he's setting up verse 13, and he's got these two groups saying, all who have sinned without the law, that's the Gentiles, all who have sinned without the law, or under the law, that's the Jews, and Israel's under the law because they received the law of Moses. Did you notice, though, where there's no distinction? Did you notice where there's no separation? The statement that all will be judged. Whether you're Jew and you have the law of the ancient customs of the people, or whether you're a Gentile or a Greek, or whether you're born in China or born in Russia or born in Germany or born in the United States, there's a law that's on your heart. 
All those groups, no distinction there, all will be judged. So verse 12 really bears down on all who have sinned without the law, that group of Gentiles, meaning he did not give the law of Moses directly to the Gentiles. So they're not going to be judged by the law. Gentiles do have a law, though. The world's population does have a law that's been written on their hearts. He's simply saying this group is going to be judged by a more limited knowledge, a more limited form of information, another knowledge. And check this. The vast majority of all humanity falls into this category. This is remarkable to me. Even with the increased technology that we have on our planet, you're watching a live stream of a message right now. It's taking place in real time. And you're sitting in the comfort of your home, able to stream it from any place around the world. And there are people who are watching from other places on this planet, not just here in the Midwest. Even with the advancement of this amazing technology that we have, and with teams who are capable of putting this live stream out, even with that, the vast majority of the population of this planet Earth have not heard clear biblical teaching. That's a remarkable thing to me that we could have all of this available to us and yet a great portion of our society have never heard clear biblical teaching even with all the technical advances that we have available today. But God says you're still accountable even if you haven't heard it the way other people have heard it because of natural revelation as well as the witness of our own heart, our own conscience. We're accountable That guilt thing that we have makes us accountable before God because we have enough information. Although both groups sin, the basis for the judgment, though, of the guilt is a little bit different. Some have the law and some don't have the law. But what have we seen really clearly so far? We've seen clearly that because all have guilt, all will be judged according to their response to the information they had available to them. All will be judged according to the light that they had available, not according to the light they did not have, but rather according to what God had provided them. Watch verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, Paul's using a really interesting term here. He's he's using a Greek word, akrotes, and he's talking about those who have a business of listening. Now, who would that be? Let's translate it to our world. Let's think of college students. College students have a business of listening. They've paid a tuition. They've paid a fee to go into a professor's classroom. Now, the students will become accountable to their professor. They have the business of listening to their professor as the professor teaches, and they will be held accountable for that because they will be tested on the information. Now, that's one group whose businesses it is to listen, and then you have another group whose businesses it is to listen, but they're auditing the class. So transfer that thought to the college system today. If you're auditing a class, you're only required to attend the class. You're not taking any test. You're not accountable to the professor. You're not going to get a grade. You just have to show up. That group listens without being accountable for what is heard. And that group represents this word that Paul's talking about here when he says it's not the hearers of the law 
but the doers of the law. What are those hearers he's talking about? In the first century, in the synagogues, when people showed up for the teachings, they were not focused on Scripture. They might hear the Scriptures read, but what they really focused on was man-made traditions. So God's Word was read. They would listen to it. They would hear it, but they wouldn't do anything with it because there was no one there to give them any clarification. So most were simply just auditing the class. I'm here to tell you this morning that God does not want auditors of his word. He doesn't want those who just listen to his word, who just show up for class and pretend like they're accountable, but they're not really accountable. God wants doers of his word, those who will take the information and actually do something with it, rather than people who think they're Christians just because they show up for church and they listen And therein they deceive themselves because they don't do anything with it. The reality is that as a person hears truth more and more and more and more, they're more responsible to God. Because the greater the hearing, the greater the judgment. You've got more information available to you. So Paul wrote in verse 13, it's the doers of the law that God wants, not just the hearers of the law. The knowledge of God's law, his God's ways, it makes you hugely responsible. It's a huge obligation to take that information and become a doer of the law. And the doer of the law, he says, is justified. Now, you might be thinking, wait, wait, the the law is impossible to keep. How can I be a doer of the law? Well, that's true. Apart from God, no one can keep God's word. But the law has a distinct purpose, and I want you to see this in Scripture. It comes from Galatians 3.24. Look at the purpose of God's law that he's written on your heart and that he's written in his word. Here's the purpose of the law. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. See, check this. this the, same guilt, the, law, the same law that makes you guilty before God That same law has a real purpose in it. And its real purpose is to cause you to recognize, I can't do this, I can't keep these laws. But the scriptures say the law's purpose is to lead you to the one who can deal with that issue of guilt in your life, that you can't keep the law, to lead us to him so that we may be what? So that we may be justified. What's a doer of the law? Well, the doer of the law is that one who comes to Jesus in faith. Now, the idea here is, is not that doing the law produces justification. You can't earn justification by works. But it's evidence. It's evidence that you're demonstrating that you belong. Check with me on a, a real-world illustration here. Making masks for people to use, sewing them up and tying them around your own head or, or giving them away freely to people, making masks for other people, it, it doesn't justify you but it gives evidence that you care about other people. It gives evidence that you're compassionate, that you're selfless like Jesus. Paul underscores here just how crucial it is to actually do what God says. Go with me to verse 14. For when Gentiles, and this is the whole reason I brought you in these last 20 minutes to this point. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are a law to themselves, 
You paying attention to this? Gentiles do instinctively the things of the law. That makes them accountable. We are governed by a law, God says, that's been written on our hearts. The most basic requirements of God are stamped on us at birth. A common understanding, Abraham in the Old Testament, who lived long before Moses, he was already carrying out the laws of Sinai long before Moses ever came around. He did it instinctively because they were written on his heart. It matters not where you go on our planet. You will find in every single culture this truth. People innately possess a sense of right and wrong. They know what's good and they know what's bad. In a very general sense, every society contains those basic frameworks, those basic rules. There's a recognition that some things are right and some things are wrong. And so we do instinctively the things of the law required by the law. An example, caring for the poor, feeding the needy, taking care of the invalid, being kind to strangers. In doing that, we make ourselves a law to ourselves. Our conduct, in other words, is revealing we've got a knowledge of right and wrong. We've got an innate sense. So verse 15 says, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. There it is. That's why we have guilt. It's been stamped on us to know what to do. So guilt is a real thing. Go on with me in the verse. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So you can't get away from it. It's in you. Your own conscience is a witness. Uh, You could argue, I don't want to be accountable. I'm going to stop going to church. I'm not going to read the Bible anymore. I don't want to hang out with Christians anymore. I don't want to be accountable like that to God. And God says, that's not going to work for you. Your own conscience, it follows you every place you go. Your own conscience is going to bear witness against you. Your own thoughts will accuse you. The way our conscience operates is this. It's got this process of accusation or defense, our own thoughts, and you you can't turn it off. Let me zoom out now to a 30,000-foot view. We've worked through this pretty quickly this morning. We all have guilt. Therefore, we will all be judged. And God judges according to the light a person has received. And he's an impartial judge. His righteousness will not allow anyone to be held responsible for what they never possessed. But Romans 1 says, all of creation is a witness to you. You all have some degree of information. Everyone possesses some degree of knowledge. Therefore, everyone will be held accountable for the knowledge they do have. When will this take place? Paul closes in verse 16, and this is where we're going to pick up next week. He closes this way, on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Now that's a theological mouthful. That's a huge statement. That's why we can't get into it this morning. We're going to come back to it next week. But see what you've just been reminded of, especially if you're a believer in Jesus this morning. 
You've been reminded that the gospel includes the reality that there is a future judgment. You got someone that comes to you and asks about the hope that is within you. Why do you have a hope? And maybe they won't hear you on your restoration story, and maybe they won't hear you about the facts of the Bible, and maybe they won't hear you about the facts of the resurrection. They might hear you on this issue of guilt, that there is a future judgment. The reality is there's a future judgment because of the massive guilt that we all bear. And I know this from reading my Bible. The only real cure for real guilt is real forgiveness. And the only source of forgiveness, that's in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why he came. Guilt is real. We need forgiveness of the guilt. And the only source of forgiveness is Jesus. That's the reality of the resurrection story. That's the reality of the gospel story. The entrance of Jesus onto the scene of humanity demands that there be a culmination in judgment. Otherwise, there's nothing to be saved from. Why would he have come if it wasn't that there is a judgment coming and we needed to be saved. But that's part B, and I'll get ahead of myself if I go any further. We've covered the guilt portion for this morning. Now we need to cover the forgiveness portion, and that will be next week. Just hear me on this before we transition back into worship to wrap up our service this morning. If you are carrying a weight today because of unresolved sin in your life, can I compel you to go to God? Go to him and ask him to forgive you. That's what the cross is all about. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. He will surely forgive you of your sins. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do before I close in prayer. Commit this next week in preparation for next week, I'm gonna ask you to, in advance, prepare yourself by examining your own heart. And where you come up short, ask God to search your heart and show you if there's any way in which you need to be convicted of sin in your life. And when he points it out to you, confess it to him. Because perhaps that unresolved sin it's holding you back from being all that God intends you to be. Pray with me. Would you do that? Father, I pray for every person who's heard this information and that they would not just be hearers of the word, but God, rather that we would be doers of the word. We've heard very, very clearly that we are all guilty before you. There's a reason that we have a hope and that hope is that you sent Jesus to forgive us of the guilt. So, Father, we can make a defense for this one because we all know it too well. We wear the guilt every day, but praise you, praise you, and thank you for this king we're about to sing about. Praise you for the reality that we've been forgiven and therefore restored to you. We praise you in the matchless name of our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen.